All right, as you made your way there, let's pause and pray. Father, to you belong the authority in the heavens and the authority on earth and under the earth. We acknowledge that there is no space that exists or could exist that you wouldn't reign supreme over. Thank you for revealing to us your goodness, your kindness, your tenderness, and your willingness and your great desire to create a relationship with us by your riches and grace and mercy. You are to be praised forever for that. And so we want to be those who can be there to offer that praise. And so carry us there. Lord, we acknowledge before you now that we have maybe lived a life this week that was full of the flesh, that whether in thought or word or deed, we have transgressed what it means to be created in your image and even to be purchased by your blood. And so we come to you to create in us a clean heart. We come to you to thank you for your forgiveness. And so, teach us your righteousness. In Jesus we pray, amen. Well, um, I'll say this. If you've never heard the gospel, which should be impossible in this church, you'll hear it today. Because Jesus is entering into displaying to people his authority in the greatest way that we've seen so far. And we've seen him have authority over nature. We've seen him have authority over uh, disease and illness. And we've seen him have authority over the spiritual realm and demons and all that goes with that. But today he's going to speak in an authority that makes us exist as a church, that makes us exist as Christians, that makes known to the world both when he spoke and did this miracle and even now that God has actually fulfilled his desire to forgive and cleanse a people for his own possession that he might dwell with them forever. And so this scene of healing the paralytic is not um, simply about healing a paralytic. It is about dealing with the plight and the illness, the disease, the cancer, whatever you want to call it, that every human being on earth who has ever existed, save Jesus, has existed in. And that is the condition of the human heart, the deadness of it caused by sin. 
and in fact the bondage to that master that we exist in before Jesus makes his pronouncement and authority like we see in verse 2 of chapter 9. So, I've told you that the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus relaying to us his authority over the law, to speak to it to the degree to which it was meant to be um, obeyed, and then his fulfilling of that in and of his own obedience. And then his authority to um, exercise power over everything that has been created. But certainly, if you remember back to the birth story of Jesus, you'll remember why it is that he was even sent here to begin with. Why it is even that he's called Jesus. And the authority that the Lord has given him to forgive sinners. That's the whole purpose of his coming to us. So I want to situate it this way, as I often like to teach people to remember the gospel in this way, with, with a problem and then a solution and then a response. And if, and if you're ever trying to remember the best way to communicate the gospel, I would start with that formula. And then learn under each of those headings what they mean according to the gospel. So we'll start with the problem here in this passage. After he's healed the men with the demons in the country of the Gadarenes, he gets in the boat and crosses over and came to his own city. And verse 2, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiving. forgiven. Now, a paralytic, right, is somebody who is unable to walk. That paralysis could spread throughout their body to where they're not able to move other limbs. Maybe they're not even able to speak due to this paralysis. And in the first century, especially in first century Judaism, paralysis was not assumed, or any disease, or any handicap, or any infirmity, uh, was assumed to be the direct result of that person's sin or the sin of their family. In other words, it had a direct correlation to the righteousness of that person. So it was assumed. But what Jesus shows us throughout the Gospels and throughout his healings is that that's not exactly why infirmity comes to people. And the great example of that is in John chapter 9 when his disciples are even communicating the fact that they believe that that blind man was born blind because either of his sin or his parents' sin. And Jesus says, no, he was born blind for the glory of God. So that, in fact, even the things that we have to deal with in this fallen world um, may be tools for the glory of God, which is a great comfort to those who well, all of us will deal with some sort of infirmity at some time. However, all illness, all disease, all handicap is a result of living in a fallen world with a fallen condition. These things exist here because of what this world is and who we as humans are 
Decay has entered in since the sin of Adam. And we all have to experience the results of that. However, sovereignly reigning over all of that for His glory is the Lord. That's why you have illnesses that can be redeemed to show the glory of God. But this is the way I would say that sometimes it even creeps into our own thinking. Sometimes it may be right. Most of the time it's probably wrong. And if you remember back to Job, as he's dealing with the death of his children, the loss of all of his livestock and, and all of his money and all of his health, his friends come to him, right? These three knuckleheads that seem to want to speak advice to him when they should just be quiet and sit with him. And his friends relate to him that the disease that he's experiencing and the death that he's experiencing were directly related to his sin and his children's sin. That's comforting. Except that it wasn't, was it? We know the reason in Job why God brought, allowed those things to be brought to Job. And we see the result. And Jesus' disciples and all the Jews at this time believe the same way. So you have to understand that this paralytic is assuming the same thing about himself. And that as you read this account in Mark 2 and in Luke 5, um, the great desire and effort they go to to get this paralytic to Jesus is, is greater than saying Jesus can heal, so let's bring him there. They are bringing their uncleanness, their shame, their guilt that they supposedly have due to this condition and, and still coming to this holy man, at least they assume him to be at this time, and, and thrusting themselves at his feet for mercy. That's, that's the great thing about their faith. That's what Jesus is seeing. But the obvious problem that Jesus addresses, that, that Jesus doesn't first address, is the paralysis. The most serious problem that touches all humans alike is the one that he addresses first. Why? Why wouldn't he just tell them to get up and walk? Well, that's not why he came. Right? Matthew 1.21, when the angel is communicating to Joseph not to divorce Mary, but this is what's actually happened in, their, in her conception. And, and this is who he is. The angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the Messiah has come not to restore Israel, not to just make people see and lame people walk. He has come specifically and expressly to save his people from their sins. The bondage that that holds us in and the wages that it pays us is death. And he's come to set us free from that in a very specific way. So it says that he saw their faith. In Mark 2 and Luke 5, this is the account by which they unearth the roof of the place that Jesus is in 
to lower down their friend to be at his feet, throwing themselves at the mercy of Jesus. And his response is perplexing. But like I explained already, the condition, the heart condition by which the paralytic and his friends come to Jesus is what he's seeing. Obviously, he needs to be able to walk. That would be healing. But there's something more here. There's something more to uncover. So he is put before God, who's in the flesh, in Jesus, in his humility, in his shame, in his guilt. And you have to understand that to be able to be in his presence with all that on you should cause great fear. A terrible fear. That would be the immediate response, right? Hebrews 10.31 tells us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here's this paralytic, full of all this sin, full of all this guilt, full of all this shame. Whether his disease is directly related to that or not, we don't know. But he thinks it is. And he is before the living God in that condition. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, that the, the most terrible thing, the most terrifying thing in all the universe is to find yourself in the hands of the living God as a sinner. Except, except what we're going to communicate, what Jesus is going to communicate about his riches in grace and mercy. So what does he hear as he comes to Jesus? The first thing he hears is take heart or take courage, right? This comforting word to cast out that terrible fear that he's feeling because love is present for him and overflowing for him. So Jesus wants to give that tender word of comfort. Sometimes you hear this from uh, angels when people encounter angels. It's again a, a terrifying thing to have these holy beings directly from the presence of God before you as an unclean human being, and, and they're afraid. And so there's always this comforting word from God to take heart. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. There is no greater pronouncement that can be given to humans than that. There is no comforting phrase or word that can be given to us than from God to say that you are forgiven. There is no greater um, reality that we can experience than by what Romans 8 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To have that weight of a broken relationship with a sovereign, eternal God um, lifted and restored to where now we experience His love and grace and kindness. There is no greater thing that one might hear in all of eternity than that. Your sins are forgiven. And that's essentially 
the solution part of all this, right? It's the gospel. The gospel is the solution. The good news that sinners can be forgiven by a holy God and come to live forever in right relationship with Him. Gospel means good news, and there is no better news for sinners than that. It. That's it. Period. And the prophecy fulfilled when Jesus' conception is told to Joseph is that uh, the one coming to save his people from their sins, uh, the, the prophetic fulfillment of that in Matthew as he describes this scene is that this one who's coming to save his people from their sins is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That God himself as judge is coming to bring pardon to his people. And in fact, to act as what Romans 3.26 tells us, the justifier. The judge is going to remove himself from the judgment bench and go sit in the judgment seat and justify us. Or pay what we owed due to our sin. God is going to accomplish that. No one else. No king of Israel. No David. But Jesus, God in the flesh, accomplishes that. Now I want to take a minute to look at what Jesus said according to the understanding that they would have had at this time. According to the understanding that they would have had uh, by the Old Testament of what forgiveness is and how it's attained. In Leviticus 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5 of Leviticus especially, they describe how to be forgiven for unintentional sin. It involves bringing a goat or a ram to the priest, spilling its blood, uh, wiping on the altar, placing hands on that animal, etc. And then that sin is atoned for, and the offering is a pleasing aroma to God as it's burnt there on the altar. And, and after all of that takes place, you can be confident that that particular sin is atoned for. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, how practical is this for people who sin all the time? You would quickly run out of livestock. And plus, you wouldn't even know all of the ways that you have even unintentionally sinned. You would quickly become destitute and poor and have nothing to offer. Hebrews 9.22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They know this. And Jesus is just making this pronouncement without any of this atonement taking place yet. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see that? I'm sorry that didn't switch on your screen, but it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
And starting back in that verse 1 of Hebrews 10, these things are shadows. In other words, Israel should realize the uh, impractical nature of performing these ceremonies. Yet they're called to because they should uh, point to them, point out to them is to come or to cry out for something that is sufficient to take away sins. And John, recognized, John the Baptist recognizes that Jesus is this, not this person simply, but this Lamb of God, right, who takes away the sin of the world. That's his pronouncement when he sees Jesus coming toward him to tell people, look what's coming to the altar. Therefore, we pick back up in Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. Again, we're speaking of the shadows of what the law and what those ceremonies and what the tabernacle and temple show us about what is to come. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Like I spoke about the impractical nature of trying to atone constantly for every single sin. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what people aren't seeing when Jesus tells this paralytic that his sins are forgiven is that he's doing so on the basis of his future but sure sacrifice of his own flesh. I would say he has great authority, all authority, to pronounce forgiveness since he himself is offering the sacrifice and the sufficiency, therefore, of it. One thing I love about the Old Testament is, uh, number one, that it um, shows us Jesus. And that, as Paul tells Timothy, it's, it's able to make you wise into salvation. Um, but God remains the same throughout every page of your Bible. His riches and mercy and grace, His steadfast love and kindness is always a part of Him and always on display. Even in judgment, let me read to you from Psalm 103, Psalm of David. Psalm 103, 8-13, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor really keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And certainly the paralytic would be characterized as one of those who comes to him with great fear, but comes to him nonetheless for mercy. That verse 8, where it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, 
is repeated throughout the Old Testament. We see this description of God in Exodus, in Numbers, in Nehemiah, certainly throughout the Psalms, Isaiah, Micah, and so forth. It's always descriptive of him. Always. And in fact, I think you'll find God's mercy and compassion in every single Old Testament book. Why? Because it's who he is. And we don't have a different God back then. We're the same God. And we have a God working throughout history and speaking through prophets and these men of old, but now has spoken to us in these latter times through Christ Jesus, his son, about the very same things. His riches and mercy and grace and his desire to restore his creation to a right relationship with himself that they might dwell with him in glory and peace forever. Amen. So what would be the response to that? What would be the response if you believe those things to be true? Let's read about what happened in this scene. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming, or he's dishonoring God. Verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Again, a display of his deity, of him being God. John 2, 25, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And he is looking there. That's where God looks. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord is speaking to Samuel about Saul, the king, first king of Israel. And he says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's why external righteousness or a righteousness that's outside of the heart does not cut it with God because he looks inward and sees everything going on in here. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It's kind of scary because if you back up one verse in Jeremiah 17, you get to verse 9, and it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the Lord knows that. He's very aware of our condition when we come to him for mercy. But coming to him for mercy is a recognition of who he is in his steadfast love and kindness and his slowness to anger. But Jesus says in verse 5 to kind of draw out the logic of everything he's doing here. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? From a, from a purely tangible, external um, viewpoint, what would be more verifiable for me to say? 
that somebody's sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? Well, you really have no way of knowing if they're pardoned or not from sin and iniquity. But if I told somebody who can't walk to get up and walk, that's pretty verifiable. They'd get up and walk, right? So there's a recognition here that uh, they, don't, they think this is evil for Jesus to say this because they don't believe Jesus is who he is. However, he is making known to them that he has such authority to say the greater thing because of what he's going to do now. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And verse 7, what happened? He rose and went home. We're talking about lifelong paralysis. In an instant, being cast away from the individual who was handicapped with it and walking for literally probably the first time in their life. In an instant. This isn't like faith healers today that are like, push people over and then say, go home and take a couple aspirins and then, you know, tell us what happened. This is, this is immediate overcoming of lifelong paralysis. So they can go back to Jesus' first statement, your sins are forgiven. If he has the ability and the authority to pronounce that over somebody, then we can be pretty sure that when he said his sins are forgiven, they were. If this handicap was a result of sin, then the miracle confirms that forgiveness has actually come to him. God has overcome whatever transgression may have caused that. But more importantly, this miracle confirms that Jesus has all authority to make pronouncements over all spheres of existence, over every atom and molecule in existence. And so what's their response? Verse 8, the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The word for afraid there means that they have this reverential awe. They're struck by the fact that they're in the presence of someone with godly authority. It's not like terror, like when you're scared of something in the dark or whatever. It's more of a weighty amazement. It's, it's, it's more than terror. It's, it's like when his disciples saw him walk on water or calm the storm. It's like seeing an empty tomb as they saw on that Easter Sunday. It's sometimes like at the appearance of angels. It's, it's recognizing that you're in the presence of a power that is incomprehensible that is so much greater than yourself, that you are completely at the mercy of that power to do whatever he wills in that moment with you. And the crowds feel this. And, and, and by feeling that, by seeing that, by experiencing that, they glorify God, who had given such authority to men. That's, that's all they recognize Jesus as up to this point. They see his humanity. 
They see what's described in Isaiah 53, that he has no appearance that we should give him any sort of uh, special attention. He appears as a man, simple man. But yet they recognize that the presence of God is there in, in a way that they have never seen or experienced before. And one of the amazing um, realizations that they have is that if he can cause people to, in an instant, rise and walk, but first pronounce sins forgiven, we may be dealing with the very presence of God himself. And here's where we come to today, because whenever you are brought into the eye-opening experience of knowing that even now, uh, because God is spirit, you are dealing with the very presence of God somewhere in your midst, convicting you of sin. And you recognize, hopefully, that that's a terrifying thing. That he knows my heart. It's, it's, it's more than knowing everything I've ever done or everything I've ever said. He knows everything I've ever thought. He knows everything I've ever felt. He knows every desire I've ever had. And, and yet I'm confronted with his presence. And I like to take people to Paul's experience with that, right? Paul is in the midst of trying to end the movement of those who follow this Jesus from Nazareth. He's in the midst of seeking to kill his people. And yet he's confronted with the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and shown utter mercy and, and, and given this call to a lifelong service to this king that he so rebelled against. Paul and every Christian experiences a real and utter terror when they come to that moment. And by the grace of God, we get to also experience in that moment a real and utter love. A real and, and amazing form of grace that is not known to humans outside of our interaction with God. And so, if you are confronted with the holy presence of God and you recognize how terrible of a thing that is for you as a sinner, also recognize that he may be confronting you with that presence to show you his grace and his mercy and his kindness. Because the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you believe that? You'll have to answer that yourself with him.
So respond to him now and then we'll stand and sing together.